I'm Jonathan Capehart, and this is Cape Up. If the book White Fragility pushes white Americans to see their witting and unwitting role in perpetuating white supremacy, then Carol Anderson's book, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, shows that fragility in action. What Anderson lays out in White Rage is a troubling yet persistent pattern in American history. Every advancement for African Americans is met with an unequal and opposite reaction. This incredible resilience and resolve that we supposedly embrace in the United States, we actually punish Black people for being resilient. We punish them for aspiring. We punish them for believing that they are American citizens. From slavery to Jim Crow, from civil rights to retrenchment, from President Obama to President Trump, Hear Anderson explain how they are all related and learn how this history buttresses the emotions behind the protests in the wake of the killings of Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, and George Floyd right now. Professor Carol Anderson, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. Thank you. Okay, so your, your book, White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide, came out of an op-ed that you wrote for the Washington Post in August of 2014. And it was trying to explain to to people, but white people in particular, why the why Ferguson and the protests in Ferguson were about a whole lot more than the killing of Michael Brown. Explain. And and so that that op-ed really came out of watching the news. It didn't matter which channel I had, you know, which station, whether it was Fox, MSNBC, CNN, they were all saying the same thing. Look at all this black rage. Look at all of these folks burning down where they live. With that that kind of narrative of black pathology piece running in there. Well, I have lived in Missouri for 13 years. I knew what that state had done to black people. And that was nowhere in that that media narrative of Ferguson. So I set out to write this piece to put that historical perspective in there and to make clear that, as I said in the piece, we are so focused in on the flames that we miss the kindling. And the kindling, those are those policies that systematically undermine African-American citizenship rights, their human rights. Um, And those policies often come in this nasty wave when African-Americans have made some kind of significant advancement in order to gain their citizenship rights. And that's what we were seeing. So I set out to provide that historical context, but also to make clear that if we look at the policies that are coming out of the White House, out of Congress, out of state legislatures, out of zoning boards, then we're having a very different kind of conversation about what is happening in America. A key paragraph in that op-ed is white rage, and you mentioned this, White rage recurs in American history. It exploded after the Civil War, erupted again to undermine the Supreme Court's Brown v. Board of Education decision, and took on its latest incarnation with Barack Obama's ascent to the White House. 
For every action of African-American advancement, there's a reaction, a backlash. And to read that, and I, and I want to really get you to dive into the more expansive argument in your book, but what I took from, from just that paragraph, and especially the last, that last sentence I read, is that what we're going through, even though it is painful, horrendous, horrific, um, and in a lot of ways, dispiriting, we've been here before. We've been through this cycle before. Yes, I, and and it's the it's one of the things that just is astounding and amazing. Given that you've got a nation that seems to wallow in the language of black pathology, if only black people would oh I don't know value education, then their schools wouldn't look like that. If only black people would oh not be thugs, then we wouldn't have to have the police all up over them. If only black people valued property, they too could have nice homes. If only black people, if uh, you know, lately, if only black people would just exercise, then maybe the coronavirus wouldn't hit them so hard, right? So you get this language of black people just not doing. But in fact, when you look at the history, you see such incredible drive, such incredible resilience, such incredible creativity that that amassing of that creativity, that refusal to accept subjugation, creates this anger within the larger white community that Black people will not accept subjugation, would not accept their place. And what you see happening then is that as these movements happen, you get this massive backlash massive backlash. So I'll take Brown, the Brown decision alone. We herald Brown because of the way that it, it, drove, it supposedly drove a stake through the heart of Plessy v. Ferguson as separate but equal. After Brown, you have states that had already been organizing to figure out how to undercut the Supreme Court decision, which would be the law of the land. So you got law-abiding folk figuring out how to undercut the law of mm -hmm. the land. And they came up with massive resistance where you have 101 uh, congressional representatives signing a manifesto saying they're gonna do everything in their power to, to, to dismantle, to block the Brown decision. You have schools shutting down for years. And what these legislatures did was they shut down the public schools and provided them funding for white children to go to school, but nothing for black children. And those white children were going to all white private academies. Think about that. So if you get black people fighting for a quality education and the states rising up saying, we will systematically deny your children that education. So that narrative of black pathology is, is false. Mm -hmm. You know, I want you to, you, you brought up Brown v. Board of Education and the backlash to that, which to me, to my mind, is the middle. What is really stark is how we went from, there was slavery, then the nirvana of reconstruction, and then the 
tidal wave backlash that was that was Jim Crow. I think most people understand what slavery was and what it did and what it meant. Talk about reconstruction and then how um, Jim Crow was the unequal and opposite reaction. And, 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 and so coming out of the Civil War, uh, which was a war fought for slavery, I mean, slavery was the central issue. So don't, you know, there's so many myths out there. This was a war about slavery. Even the South says this was a war about slavery when you read their uh, articles of secession. Reconstruction was, um, there were two phases. There was presidential reconstruction with Andrew Johnson, who was before now probably the worst president ever in the history of the United States. He pardoned the, the Confederate uh, leaders, uh, welcomed them back into the fold. They wrote these really horrific state constitutions and they wrote black codes to try to reinstall slavery by another name. The congressional, we had the radical Republicans. I love that term. The radical Republicans were fighting tooth and nail to incorporate the newly uh, freed people into the body politic of the United States of America and providing the economic wherewithal as well as the political wherewithal. They weren't able to get everything that they wanted, but they managed to get, we already had the 13th Amendment that abolished slavery. They managed to get the 14th Amendment, which provided birthright citizenship and due process. And then the 15th Amendment, with, which guaranteed at the time black men the right to vote. So you've got political power and you've got citizenship. This looks like, okay, we're almost there. We're almost there. The backlash was so intense. What Andrew Johnson could not uh, accomplish, the US Supreme Court did. The US Supreme Court eviscerated the 14th Amendment basically saying that all of those rights, the, the federal rights that citizens are, are, uh, have access to are very narrow, like the right of habeas corpus. But every one of your other rights has to come through the state. And so you begin to imagine, you've got these Confederate leaders in charge of these states, and now their uh, ability and willingness to acknowledge and enforce and enhance the rights of the freed people. The Supreme Court is saying, yeah, it's up to them. So we know what's going to happen to those rights. You have them also saying that the right to vote in the 15th Amendment really wasn't a right. <laughs> um, it, it means that the state can't like set different standards, but it really doesn't give you a right to vote. And the states had a field day. And, and, and there was language also, there was the, enforce, the force acts that was to deal with the violence of reconstruction, the rise of the Klan and domestic terrorism that, that, that was raining down on black people. And the Congress, radical Republicans, helped pass the force acts. The U.S. Supreme Court, in a case called Cruikshank, 
in Colfax, Louisiana in 1873, black militia were protecting the, the outcome of an, of an election. And whites got mad and slaughtered them. At least 100 black people killed in Colfax, Louisiana. The feds charged them with violating the Force Acts. The Supreme Court came back and said, nope, Force Acts, unconstitutional violation of states' rights for all intents and purposes. And that the, 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 the Force Act could really only be applied to state violence, not private violence, not that kind of domestic terrorism. Oh. Yeah, Crookshank is real. So the Supreme Court has gone after the right of basically of citizenship and due process. It's gone after and undermined the right to vote. And then it basically went after the basic right to live. That's what the Supreme Court did in route to Jim Crow. Then it gives us two key, actually three key decisions. One is Plessy v. Ferguson, the one that we know of as separate but equal. It also gives us the Williams decision, which says that the disfranchising uh, mechanisms that Mississippi had put in place, like the poll tax and the literacy test, do not violate the 15th Amendment, do not violate the right to vote. <laughs> wow. And then it gave us the Cummings decision that said that in times of financial exigencies, that if a school district has to shut down the black school and can only have enough money for the white school, that doesn't violate Plessy v. Ferguson's separate but equal. I mean, it is, it's breathtaking to, to hear you describe it, but also to read it in your book, because the, the beauty of White Rage, of your book, White Rage, is that you show, you show the cycles and you show the lengths to which um, um, the, the federal government and white people have gone to yank back whatever advancements have been made by African-Americans. Yes, yes, and, and, and that, was, that was so important because we get these narratives in America um, that lead to, well, all black people have to do is, everybody else here has made it. I don't know why you can't, right? Um, right, right? Uh, but when you begin to systematically look at the ways that black people's basic strivings for decent housing, decent schools, uh, the right to live unharassed um, have been systematically undermined and thwarted. Um, it means that we're coming up with a very different narrative. So I see that this incredible resilience and resolve that we supposedly embrace in the United States, we actually punish Black people for being resilient. We punish them for aspiring. We punish them for believing that they are American citizens, believing that they are even human. We punish that. 
And we could say that you know, we punish black people for believing the words on the page, for believing in the Bill of Rights, for believing in the words of the Constitution. What I love about your book, and I keep coming back to the cycles because people seem to think that history is history and that it doesn't repeat. So we talked about slavery, Reconstruction, Jim Crow. We've talked about um, Brown v. Board of Education, or as I wrote in my notes, civil rights movement, civil rights laws, President Reagan. Slavery, Reconstruction, Jim Crow was blatant. It was out there. It was in your face. But when it cycles through in the third iteration, civil rights movement, civil rights laws, President Reagan, it becomes a lot more subtle and a lot more insidious. Absolutely. And part of that was the strategy, the white rage strategy that I lay out. It is when Lee Atwater, who was Reagan's strategist for what was called the Southern strategy, and that's how the Republicans wooed in the Southern Democrats after uh, Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And Lee Atwater said, well, in 54, you could say the N-word, 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 right? Uh, he said, it didn't hurt you. Ooh, but after 68, you said it, it backfired. And so we started talking about economic things. We started talking about using language like mm, taxes, or forced busing, or states' rights. All of those things, he said, were designed so that Blacks get hurt worse than whites. And so you didn't have the, the kind of fulmination you had pre-Brown, or pre-Civil Rights, where you could get a Theodore Bilbo out of Mississippi just foaming at the mouth hurling the inward daggers uh, to, to get his crowd all riled up. But you'll get Reagan down in Neshoba County, Mississippi, which is the site of the killing, the Klan killing of civil rights workers uh, at the beginning of Freedom Summer of James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Mickey Schwerner. Their killing led to the passage of the Civil Rights Act. And so to have Reagan from California go down to Neshoba County, Mississippi. Of all, of all counties. Right, right. So he's not, in, he's not in Jackson, Mississippi, right? He's not in Biloxi, Mississippi. He's in Neshoba County, Mississippi. That is so deliberate. And he says, I'm a firm believer in states' rights. That is, you know, Ian Haney Lopez talks about dog whistle politics. Mm -hmm. We get into the era of dog whistle politics, language like law and order, language like welfare queen, language like the silent majority and hardworking Americans. And in that language, silent majority and hardworking Americans are not black people, but thugs who need law and order. These, these rabid dog criminals, that is always coded as black. 
And that means that we have to have now this war on drugs, um, which you look at the data, black people sell and use drugs basically the least of all racial and ethnic groups in the United States, the least. Where it's equal is in the usage of marijuana. <laughs> After that, it plummets. But Black people are arrested and incarcerated at much higher levels than anybody else for drugs. What the war on drugs did, when you talk about this cycle, this backlash, what it did was it provided a way to, to continue to criminalize Blackness and to short circuit the gains of the civil rights movement. So what we know is that if you have a felony conviction, there are places you can't live. So your right to equal housing guaranteed under the Federal Housing Act and guaranteed under the Civil Rights Act no longer apply. There are schools and that, loans that you can't get to go to school. So your access to education is now blocked because of that felony conviction. Voting. So what happens to the Voting Rights Act of 1965, this landmark uh, uh, legislation that did just enormous work, powerful work. When you have a felony conviction, there are some states at that time and still now that had permanent felony disfranchisement. So the moment you got hung with a felony conviction, you no longer could vote. You had what I call civic death. In Florida alone, up to 2018, Florida had 1.7 million of the little over 6 million Americans who could not vote in the United States. 1.7 million alone were in Florida. 40% of age eligible, voting age eligible black men could not vote in Florida because of a felony conviction. So you can see how the war on drugs is able to erode and, and corrode the power of the Voting Rights Act. Subtle, but ooh, just as lethal. You use three three phrases um, going back to the early 1980s, even the 19 even the 1970s with President Nixon and the 80s with President Reagan. You used law and order, thugs, silent majority. There may have been one or two others. Each of these phrases has been used by the current president of the United States. But now it's not even dog whistles. These are bull, these are now bullhorns. Talk about give me your reaction to having the sitting president of the United States using this language and how it's and how it's resonating with the American people today versus 30, 40, uh, my math is wrong, 50 years ago. I think the best way for me to do this is to take us through the 2016 election and then move us through. Mm -hmm. So what we saw in that 2016 um, primary, the Republican primary, that there were like, what, 16 other candidates or so. Right, a lot of them. A lot of them, that was a full stage. <laughs> um, and many of whom had governing and policy experience. That was not Donald Trump. Mm 
He did not have any experience in government and how to govern. He wasn't a successful businessman. He had, what, five, six bankruptcies, including bankrupting a casino, which takes a special kind of gift to bankrupt a casino. He didn't, he didn't have any of the kinds of check the box things that would make somebody a viable candidate. What he had was a kilo of pure, uncut white supremacy. He rose to the political floor on the language of birtherism, on systematically denying the legitimacy of Barack Obama to hold the presidency. Now, birtherism not only was just a lie, a racist lie, but what it also was, was it ignored American law dealing with citizenship. Citizenship in America comes through your mother. Obama's mother is a white Kansan, American as they come. And they elided, eroded, erased her very being, which was to erase his citizenship, to, to make him other. He is foreign. He, and where he is born, that is what he brought. That is what Trump brought. That is what put him above his challengers on the stage. And remember, he came down the steps, escalator, talking about Mexicans are rapists and criminals. Oh, yeah. Said those words within two minutes of his, of his announcement. Boom. He was, he, this, so the GOP, the Republicans had been using these dog whistles so effectively since Richard Nixon. And what blew them away was he was no longer dog whistling because the Republicans had pumped and primed their base with this for so long that when you heard that his base say, oh, I love it because he tells it like it is. <laughs> he says the things that I, that I can't say. Right, right. Oh, um, and, and so what we saw in that 2016 election was that whites were the only racial or ethnic group that voted in the majority for Donald Trump. Black women, for instance, you cannot find the percentage point <laughs> that voted for Donald Trump. Every racial and ethnic group other than whites in the United States just were repulsed by him. He carried that with him. I, I, I talk about every time he looks like he's getting in trouble, he would throw another kilo of white supremacy down on the, on the, on the table. So we would get Muslim bans. We would get babies in cages at the borders. We would get these caravans coming up to, to, to you know, full of murderers and drug thieves. We would get one doggone racist rant after the other. But I think this time is a bit different. And what makes, I think what makes this so different is that his mismanagement of the coronavirus and his mismanagement of the economy is now affecting far too many people. 
So remember even when he shut down the government because he wanted to build the wall right. and needed the money? And it was shut down for almost, what, two months or something like that? And I, I read a report, there was a woman leaving Florida who said, who was a, a federal worker who wasn't getting paid. And she said, he's not hurting the people he's supposed to be hurting. That tells you so much. And so the difference between he's not hurt is that now the people that he's not supposed to be hurting are getting hurt. And so his language about thugs isn't quite working because like there is the tape of Lord George Floyd. Mm -hmm. There is the tape of Ahmaud Arbery. And we know that Breonna Taylor was in her bed sleeping and was shot with eight bullets. These aren't, these, this, this is not playing into the narrative of thugs. And so it's making his incompetence means that his dog whistles and his bullhorns aren't quite working. His base is shrinking. It's making it more toxic because all of the leavening agents are, are, are leaching out but it's not working for, and it hasn't worked. Again, we've got to say this, but he never won the majority of the votes. He, he never got above 50% in the approval ratings either. True, but he won a majority of the votes where he needed them in order to win the electoral college. And what makes me fearful is that he could possibly do it again. I look at the 2018 midterm elections as a dry run for 2020 in that if you look at the House of Representatives, look at that as the popular vote. Democrats ran away, ran away with it and took over the, the House majority. And you knew he gave up on the House because in the last two weeks, he spent the last two weeks every day, sometimes a couple times a day, throwing red meat, racism, white supremacy, to your point, to these audiences. And not only did Republicans maintain control of the Senate, but gained a couple seats. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is the Electoral College, because these were all in, in red states. And so I'm just sitting back. Everyone's asking me, well, of course, how, who do you think's going to win? I'm like, I do not know. Don't ask me because I, I am scared. Um, but we only briefly touched on President Obama. And I'm glad we're, we're saving it for the end. <clears throat> because to me, in your book, you crystallize why it was possible for someone like Donald Trump with none of the boxes checked off, with no experience, all the things you, you pointed out, why he was able to overcome all those people on the stage and then become president of the United States. Um, you, you write, and I think this was, you say, the trigger for white rage inevitably is black advancement. It is not the mere presence of black people that is the problem. Rather, it is blackness with ambition, with drive, with purpose, with aspirations, and with demands for full and equal citizenship. It is blackness that refuses to accept subjugation, to give up. The truth is that despite all this, 
a black man was elected president of the United States, the ultimate advancement and thus the ultimate affront. Yes, yes. The hatred for Obama was so intense and so divorced from anything that he did except being black that it, it had that base, it had that fuel within white America looking for the un-Obama. Do you remember those commercials way back with Jeffrey Holder and 7-Up? Yeah, yes, the un cola, something like the that. The un-cola, right? So you have this, or the un-Obama. And, and who is the, the penultimate un-Obama? But Donald Trump. Everything that Obama brought, intelligence, compassion, um, Empathy. policy wonk, right? Mm -hmm. Love of his wife and fidelity. <laughs> God-fearing, all of those things that should check the box, but his blackness overrode all of that for the majority of whites who voted. And you saw that anger coming through in so many ways. You saw it in terms of the, the disrespect. Like when Joe Wilson yells out, you lie, um, as Obama is giving a speech in Congress. It is Mitch McConnell talking about our only job is to make sure he is a one-term president. You saw it in Mitch McConnell refusing to even hold committee hearings for Obama's uh, Supreme Court appointee, Merrick Garland. But where you particularly see this anger at Obama is in voter suppression because you know, one of the narratives that America tells itself was that, well, how racist can white Americans be because we put a black man in the White House twice? Yes, I was about to ask you that question. <laughs> <laughs> yes, go ahead. What's your response to that? Yeah, and, and the response is, mm, that's not quite accurate because the majority of whites have not voted for a Democratic candidate for president since 1964, since Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act that said that he would put the power of the federal government behind enforcing, recognizing the citizenship rights of African-Americans. Since that moment, the majority of whites have not voted for a Democratic candidate. And that includes Sons of the South. Jimmy Carter did not get the majority of white voters. Bill Clinton did not get the majority of white voters. And so I'm here to tell you, Barack Obama did not get the majority of white voters. Although that's the language we all, you know, we put a black man in the White House twice. Well, how that black man got into the White House twice was you had a, a significant segment of whites who voted for him, but he had an incredible ground game. In 2008, that brought 15 million new voters to the polls. They were overwhelmingly African-American, Hispanic, Asian-American, young and poor. That would become the hit list for voter suppression. When we look at the kinds of policies that are out there now, from voter ID 
and gerrymandering and poll closures and restrictions on early voting. All of those things are designed to take out one or two or more of those groups, what I call the Obama coalition. It is to ensure that no one like Barack Obama will ever get close to the White House or any major elected um, position again. And so when we're looking at voter suppression, that is the response to Obama. And it is voter suppression. You know, you talked about those handful of states that won Donald Trump, the Electoral College. Right. Those are voter suppression states. Those voter suppression put Donald Trump in the White House. And that's why you're seeing this kind of mass mobilization by civic society to fight against all of these different methods so we don't do this dance again. You know, I um, have been raving about your book and about Robin DiAngelo's book, White Fragility. Um, she, she's been on the podcast and I've been urging everyone since I read, I read both your books back to back. And I have, been, I have been urging people to do that, to read them both back to back because they, they're like book covers. They, they complement each other. They answer each other, uh, each other. They explain each other. White Fragility, what I love about it is that it is a white woman writing to white people about racism and forcing them to look at it, look at themselves, learn. So with, with white rage, and you're a black woman writing this book, what message do you want white people to take away from your book? I want whites to begin to have evidence-based, fact-based conversations with other whites, because that is going to dismantle white rage. When we hear, for example, well, you know, um, they've got to let in all of these unqualified minorities into college, and that's why my child can't get in. That is the moment where the white person sitting around that table says, well, actually, no, because the greatest beneficiary of affirmative action in college admissions are males, not minorities, males and then to be able to explain why. I want in those conversations, whites, because this is the work that white folks have to do. It really is. And I wanted to give them the history and the evidence in order to engage in those conversations instead of saying, that's not right. To be able to say why that's not right. Because a major piece is they've got to dismantle the frame of zero sum game that the, in order for me to advance, then it can only be at your expense. There are enough resources. The white rage has in fact extracted resources, not only from blacks, but from whites. We all lose in white rage. Think about over 100,000 deaths in the United States alone because white supremacy put a virulent toxin white supremacist in the White House who has no governing and no policy experience and is absolutely incompetent as a businessman as well. So he can't figure out stuff. 
he can just figure out how to be racist. That's what white rage does. It hurts us all. So that's who my, my, what I wanted from this book, were for whites to be able to have the knowledge base, to be able to have a real conversation with other whites and shut this craziness down. Carol Anderson, author of White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide and professor of African-American studies at Emory University. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, thank you so much, Jonathan. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.